great privilege to share again this morning. Um, can you please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? I'm just going to pray before I start. Lord Jesus, I thank you for preaching. I thank you for the gift of preaching. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege of sharing your words. I thank you for what you've already started in the worship. And Lord, I, I pray that you'd continue that right now. Lord, we live for your glory. We live ultimately for that affirmation one, that one day that we will hear from your voice. Well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, that's what we're living for, not for anything else. I pray, Lord, that as I share this morning, that uh, you would give me grace. I pray, Lord, that the words that are from you would take root in people's hearts. I pray everything else would fall to the ground. But I pray, Lord, in this place this morning, you would be glorified. You would be lifted up. You would be exalted and that we would leave transformed. We don't want to come here week after week just leaving the same people. We thank you, Lord, that you are transforming us by your Spirit from one degree of glory to another. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you this morning about heaven. And the title of my message is taken from that song that we sang. It's called simply this, Heaven Beckons Me. Heaven beckons me. Heaven beckons me. It beckons you. We are living for eternity in mind. We, we are not living for what we see right now and for the temporal. And I really trust that uh, what I share this morning will inspire you and encourage you in your own journey as you walk with Jesus from now until the end of, well, maybe he'll come back before you die. But if you don't, that you would live for Jesus with a passion and with a, with a depth of hunger in your heart. And we're going to read a, lo a long portion of Scripture this morning, 1 Corinthians 15. It's, it's about 60 verses or so. I'm going to make some comments out of that. And then I'm going to make four points out of 1 Corinthians 15. I really trust that it would inspire you. Heaven beckons me. Heaven beckons you. Heaven is calling. And uh, we don't live for this life. We are, we are just pilgrims through this life. We are in this mortal body. Ant is not what you see right now with your eyes. Ant lives and resides in here, in this physical body. And one day I will go and be with Christ forever, and I will be glorified. And that's a great reward all those that love and serve Him. Huh? It's a beautiful thing that we are going to be with Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. If you are visiting this morning and you don't know what the gospel is, there's the gospel for you in one little sentence, that Jesus Christ died for your sins. And all you have to do is believe that Jesus died for your sins and you are saved. That is it. That is the gospel. That is good news. That He was buried... That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the Twelve. And he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. I love, I love the Scripture when it talks about dying. It doesn't talk about death. It just says they fell asleep. Went to be with him in glory. It's beautiful. I love that. I want to fall asleep one day. Just in the peace of God and go and be with him. I hope it's not too soon. I still want to do some stuff while I'm here. And then he appeared to James. 
then to all the apostles, and last of all to us, and last of all uh, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of all the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Isn't that beautiful? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Uh, I sent a text a, a while back to uh, some guys. Um, there's a musician who I forget his name now. Who's the, the guy who looked like he, he was a bit of a, he played the acoustic guitar and he, um, he sang songs like, he, was, he looked a bit like monkish. What was his name again? I sent it to you. I can't remember. But anyway, my point is this. He, he said this very simply. He said, people know me as the singing Bible geek guy because he's got big glasses and he plays acoustic guitar. Michael Card, Michael Card, that's it. He said, he said, people know me as the singing Bible geek guy. Be happy with your gift and never be jealous for another's. Whoever you are, by the grace of God, whatever God, God has called you to be, whether you feel like you're the whatever, I could also put my hand up, but perhaps I'm also like a, a singing geek, but it doesn't, doesn't bother me because I am by what I am by the grace of God and you are what you are by the grace of God. Let's enjoy each other and enjoy the gifts that God has given us. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but it was the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Paul writing to the Corinthian church. The resurrection of Jesus is a fact. The tomb is still empty. No matter what National Geographic says and all the documentaries that are trying to prove that the resurrection was false, they still not have found the body the resurrection is true. Over 500 people saw Jesus at one time out of this portion that we read here. Some felt his wounds. Some felt the holes. And millions of people around the world today bear testament to the fact that Jesus is risen and he's transformed their lives. And this message of the resurrection of Christ has produced believers all over the world. Tens of millions of believers. And this thing is really beginning to irritate me. My ear is obviously out of shape. Anyway, and then Paul goes on to verse 12, and he says, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Now, it's interesting because this is the same province as Athens is in, and if you know, previously Paul had been uh, in Athens and had preached, and the crowds had sneered at him and laughed at him because he was talking about the resurrection of the dead. But here he says, how can you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13, and if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Basically, we're in big trouble. If Jesus wasn't raised, we are in big trouble. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. This thing that we do is worthless if Jesus was not raised from the dead. That is at the very center of what we believe as Christians. That's why I said at the beginning of the meeting, if you don't really believe that, then come and join with me. Let's go down to the pub and let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, and if there's no resurrection of the dead, then none of this is worth anything anyway. That's the truth. Let's go to the pub right now. Verse 15. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because... We testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He's just making his point very, very clear. 
and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Perished. <laughs> and the Greek word there is apolumai, which simply means this, that we are delivered eternally into the misery of hell. Now, I don't want to get into doctrines of hell because there are a few things that are contentious. There's, uh, Augustine introduced this thing of eternal hell and damnation and fire and brimstone. That was Augustine, all right? Because the Greeks had this uh, understanding that the soul lives forever, all right? That it lives forever. But there's another contrasting doctrine which, which talks about annihilation. It's not a major thing that I want to dwell on now. But simply that means at the, at the end of time, all that are not in Christ will be destroyed forever. Destroyed. You, not necessarily that we're going to burn in hell forever. All right? So I'm, he's not, I don't want to get distracted, but there are those, those doctrines, those, in a sense, contrasting doctrines. But he says here, he says, if we are in Christ, and if Christ is not, not um, uh, resurrected, we too, we, are, we, we will just sink into Hades, and that was the fear of many of people in the Old Testament. If you read, for example, Job uh, chapter 7, I'll just quote it to you, verse 8. It says, The eye of him who sees me will behold me no more. While your eyes are still on me, I shall be gone. As the cloud fades and vanishes, so he goes down to Sheol and he does not come up. He returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. There's that sense of finished. It is finished. It's over. Verse 19. But... If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have been fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Amen. If you are in Adam, if you are still in Adam, you will die. That means you will live in eternal separation from God in perpetual punishment for your sins that have not been atoned for. But if you are permanently, genuinely in Christ, you shall be made alive. Amen. This is the good news of the gospel. And Paul writes also in Romans chapter 8, verse 22, he writes this, he says, For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now the hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We're not living for now. And if you feel like you've been living for now, I want to convince you, in the time that we've got left this morning, that we are living for something far greater, far higher, far more glorious. We're living for that resurrection when we'll be glorified with Him. Uh, I was reading this week, and there's a guy called uh, Sinclair Ferguson, and he talked about this thing of the first Adam, and the through first Adam, all sin came into the world, and through Christ, the last Adam, uh, we have redemption. And so he says this, he says, Jesus Christ comes into the world and takes on our flesh as the second man through whom God would deal with the entire group of men and women. The last Adam would accomplish the work on our behalf so that we could, that we could not accomplish ourselves, but it would not be accomplished 
uh, sorry, but it would have to be accomplished within our flesh and blood, and it would have to last forever. Do you remember what the writer of Hebrews says? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same thing, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who, who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The good news of Jesus, that has been broken of our lives. And then verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruit, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjugation under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjugation, it is plain that he is accepted uh, to put all things in subjugation under him. When all things are subject, subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to him to put all things in subjection under him and that God might be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And why am I in danger every hour for writing to the Corinthian church? Well, I want to say this. Why, why do you think that I gave up a comfortable life in South Africa with a big house, four bedrooms, swimming pool, half an acre of land, very comfortable life in a big church, having great salary, doing what I love most, leading worship, very nice, comfortable life close to my friends who've known me for years, close to my family who love me as I am, why would I give that up and come here? For what reason? What's the point? <laughs> Absolutely, sunshine, Andrew. Why would I give that up? Why have I swapped that to come and live here doing what we are doing now? I'm discovering more and more that pastoring is the most rigorous thing in your life. There's a stress that comes when you get involved constantly with other people's lives and their mess-ups and problems. There's a stress that comes to your life and affects your family. Why would I want to give up what I had to come and do that? If it is only that we've, we somehow give people momentarily relief from their problems, and, uh, but in the end, we die. If that's what it's all about then I want to just say to all of us this morning, if that's really what it's all about, let us just go and get as many toys as we can. Then I want to encourage you with all of my heart to go after the biggest salary that you could find, buy, buy a house for yourself now, a, a huge house, the biggest one that you can afford, and go and buy yourself another house in some other place as well, and just accumulate as much as you can for yourself, and get a yacht on the Mediterranean, and do whatever your heart desires, if that's what it's about, if that is the end then just do that with all of your heart and give yourself to money. Make as much of it as you can. Accumulate wealth for yourself and just stuff it in your face and get your family the best clothes that you could ever hope for and spend it all. Live like that. Because if it is for now, then we should really give ourselves with our whole hearts to doing that because there is nothing afterwards. Are you with me? Not to mention the dangers of being a Christian uh, uh, almost 2,000 years ago. You know, I love, I love Russell Crowe and Gladiator. It's one of my favorite films. But I mean, 
the reality is that uh, certain, uh, if you're a Christian in the first century, certain death sentence thrown to the lions. In fact, Paul talks about finding the peace in Ephesus later. So we could all go and do the gladiator thing, or we could become Roman candles for the sake of the mad King Nero. That's what it was like in the first century. They were living for something far deeper than the now. They were convinced of something absolutely far more glorious than the now. What gives you the grace to be burnt alive if you're just living for now? Got to be a, a conviction that we are living for, for something far more glorious than what is here and now. My friends, I want to say this to you. I believe persecution is coming again. It might not look like the persecution of the first century, but if you and I are not living for a far deeper love and a far higher goal, we will not withstand what is coming. We will give up like that. Matthew Henry, a wonderful commentator in the scripture, he says this, Christianity would be foolish, a foolish profession if it proposed no hope of life beyond this life. If it required men to risk all the blessing and comforts of this life and to face and endure all the evils of it without any future prospects, then Christianity is a foolish, foolish thing. Verse 31, Paul carries on, he says this, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain, humanly speaking? I fought with the beasts at Ephesus. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. <laughs> it is so simple. If there is no resurrection of the dead, if we are not raised, if this gospel is not true, let's eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow it all ends and there's just blackness and oblivion, and we don't know any better either. Paul goes on to say this in verse 33. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Bad company ruins good morals. Can I give you a definition of bad company in terms of the Bible? Definition of bad company? Bad company is this. It's being around people who profess to be Christians, but by their words, by their behavior and their priorities and their lifestyle, they fail to evidence any sense of eternity any hope of a glorious resurrection and any fear of the day of judgment. In other words, Petri picked up wonderfully on what Tim Keller lectured when he was talking about grace and preaching grace and, and uh, doing justice. And he talked about this thing of our vertical relationship with God, that when we read righteousness in the New Testament, we love just to talk about the grace of God and the truth of God and that we are in Christ and that's all true. But he looked at two biblical words. He looked at Mishpah and another one called Tzadek, which talks about uh, justice, righteousness with God. And the other one is always to do with righteousness with each other. And it talks about the sense that it's always social. And hence, our, he, he majored on the thing of concern for other people. And he said, some, he said some radical things. And I want to just give you a couple of sentences that he said as we talk about this thing of living for eternity. He said, righteousness, biblically, a righteous man is one who sees his wealth as belonging to the whole community. A wicked man is one who sees his wealth belonging only to himself. You know, when they, in the in old, old days when they went and reaped the, the harvest, they purposefully left behind some of the, the harvest, and then the poor came along, and they took that harvest for themselves. Yeah? So there was, and even in the harvest, there was something for the poor. 
And yet, when we do things, we think, aren't we being so charitable? Look how gracious we are being to the poor. And look how much we give. And yet God just sees it from his perspective. He says, when you do that, you are just being a righteous man. Not a charitable man, a righteous man. You're not being wicked when you take care of the poor. Man, it's powerful. Secondly, this is just a minor tangent, right? I'm coming back to the thing of resurrection, but it just proves, it just uh, reiterates this point. He said this, there's no law anywhere to foster people or foster orphans or care for people. And uh, if we do those things, we like to see ourselves as being charitable, but God, God, God calls that just living. You are living justly. You are living righteously. There's an other's orientation in the Scripture, in the Word of God. Helen said it. You disadvantage yourself for the sake of others. My life disadvantaged so your life can be more. The way of the world is completely the other way around. How much can I get out of you? How much can I rip you off so that my life is more comfortable and better? That's the way of the world. Christ says when you live like that, it's wicked. When we live for others, we live justly. Living justly is seeing all of your skills and your talents as belonging to others, not just yourself. I'm a musician. I've seen the musicians, they think that all their talents are for their glory and for themselves and their career and making it big. Ah, everyone's trying to make it big. Why? So I can be lifted up and be glorious. No, no. Your gifts, your talents, whether it's music, whether it's art, whatever it is, making money, it's for the, it's for the good of the community. It's for good for others, not just for yourself. Biblical definition of bad company. Being around people who profess to be Christians, but by their words and behavior and their priorities and lifestyle, they don't have, they fail evidence any sense of eternity, any sense of living for anything more glorious than just the temporal, just the now, just this life. And you know, the Bible says this, the word says that we should have less to do with sinful Christians that we should, than we should have to do with sinners. You know that? The Bible says if you, if, you, if you go around people that live like that, what you do is you blunt yourself. You, you, you blunt yourself to eternal things and you just, in the end, get sucked into this thing of let's live for now. And so the Bible says have little to do with, with Christians who live like that. Why? Because their sin is contagious. And the Bible says actually we should hate even the, the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. This is radical. It's like the image of running a race. If you, if you give yourself to those kind of people, they tug you off course and you start to miss the things of eternity and just start to live for now. Just now. This is good news. And the scripture also says there is a judgment day for all believers. And on that day, our works, not Christ's works on our behalf, not, nothing to do with salvation. No, not, we're not talking about salvation on that day of judgment. We're talking about our works produced by faith and the grace of God in our lives. On that day, our works will be judged. They will be. And it's going to be a day of embarrassment for some, and for others, it's going to be a day of great victory and glory in Christ. And that brings me to an important point that actually many Christians believe in the resurrection. Absolutely. But somehow, it's, believe it's just like one big crowd, and we all shuffle into heaven together, just part of the crowd, part of the saved. We all just get in. 
all equal. <laughs> Christ is my free ticket into heaven. What does Paul say? 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we must make it our aim to please Him. We make it our aim to please Christ. For we must all appear before the day, the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one might receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And my friends, I'm trying to persuade you as best as I can this morning to start living with eternity in mind. Start living more fully. I'm not accusing anyone that you're not living with eternity in mind, but start living with a passion for, for heaven. That there's something far greater than just what we see right now. Matthew Henry says of those verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, It is that well-grounded hope of heaven that will be far from giving the least encouragement to sloth and sinful security. On the contrary, they should stir up in us the greatest care and diligence in our faith. Amen? The greatest care and diligence. So let's encourage each other to wake up from a, this kind of drunken stupor, this sense of it's all going to just be okay. And not go on sinning. Let's encourage each one another uh, daily. I want to jump through to verse uh, 51. Behold, I shall tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in one moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal body puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, it gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I want to encourage you that your labor is not in vain. I want to encourage this church for all the last 10 years. Your labor is not in vain. There is a reward coming. There is a great and glorious day when we will be resurrected and go to be with Christ forever. And that's what we live for. That's what gives us the grace now to overcome all those things that drag us down. If you're living for those things that alone, those things will drag you down. If you're living for money, the stock market will always go up and down and your emotions are going to go up and down all the time. If you're living for investments and your big house and one day you lose your big house, your security, if it's in your house, is going to come whoop. Nothing. No, our security needs to be where? In eternity. In Jesus. In Him. I want to just finish four little things that Paul or characteristics of his life, 
which show me directly that he lived with this eternity in mind. He lived knowing that heaven was beckoning for him. Heaven was calling for him. One, he lived with a constant yearning to be with Jesus. He lived with a constant yearning to be with Christ. And in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 says this, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. In other words, if I'm still alive, I can get on and have fruitful labor in terms of my life. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Jesus, for that is far better. (laughs) Much better to be with Jesus in glory. Amen? Man, I love worship as a musician. But you know, if that revelation can just get in on the inside of us, our worship times would be the most explosive times of just pouring out our hearts in passion before God. If if we're really living with that in our hearts, it's like the fuel for our times of worship. I'd rather be the knowledge that one day we're going to be with Jesus. And when we sing right now, it's an expression of those deep things. It's not just, we're not just singing because we're happy. If we're singing because we're happy, then we know different from the big, the businessman who makes a 10 million dollar deal or pound deal and gets a big bonus and he whistles on the way home and is really happy. We know different to that. The only reason why we come to worship is because it makes us happy. Well, It's nothing, you hear what I'm saying? No, we we worship because the King of glory is here. And we're going to be with Him. And we are His people. And our songs are a fragrant offering to Him. And that is the fuel of our worship. Philippians 1.20, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but with that full courage, now as, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul speaking again to the Philippian church. He had a constant longing in his heart to be with Jesus. Motivated him in everything. I'm not here to accuse anyone. I'm just trying to. I'm, I'm here to say, how, how do you feel about going to be with Jesus? Is it a longing of your heart? Or the things of this world become more and more enticing? What was that old Sunday school song? The things of this world will go strangely dim in the light of His glory, His grace. I want to encourage you in that this morning, my friend. Secondly, Paul, his aim in everything here on earth was to please Jesus. His aim on earth in all things was to please Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Please note it, very simple thing. Please Him. Not Himself. He doesn't say, my aim is to please myself. My aim is to please others. That's good to help others. He says, my aim is not to, to please others. My aim is firstly to please Him in all things. I want to please him. Why? Because he knew that man was created to worship, to glorify God. And all of our lives flows from that basic primary truth. Our relationship with God is the foundation for all other relationships in our lives. Paul knew that and understood that. 
And he knew that ultimately everything would be tested by that truth. And it's by the fire of God. And uh, 1 Corinthians 4 says this in verse 3. Maybe you just want to write the scripture down. But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. <laughs> Paul speaking. He says, I don't even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive their commendation. Let's not judge. Let's just get on and do what God has called us to do. You know, um, before my, my mom died, she had this uh, hormone replacement therapy that you can get as a lady now when you are uh, a little bit older and it's supposed to help your body and all that kind of stuff. Well, maybe we should have some motive replacement therapy as a church community. Maybe we should ask God to transform our motives. No? Mary and Martha. Well, some of us, I think, naturally Marys, and some of us are naturally Marthas. But I know this, that Jesus is able to turn every Martha into Mary. Someone who will just sit at his feet and worship him and choose what is best. Amen? Thirdly, Paul was, he was willing to suffer anything here. He was willing to suffer anything here on earth to achieve that great resurrection that was to come. I don't like suffering. Anyone here like suffering? Please put up your hands right now. I don't like hard times. I find them particularly <laughs> stressful. But I know this, that in the hard times of my life, one thing that has happened is that God has enlarged me from the inside. And so I thank God for some of the hard times. But I don't want to live all the time in looking for suffering. I'm not a masochist, you know what I'm saying? I don't want to see how much I can suffer. But, but Paul was amazing because he was willing to suffer anything here on this earth for the sake of the glory and the resurrection that was to come. And what does he say in Philippians 3 verse 10? You can write this down as well and go and read it later. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on. I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Can I say that over all of you as a church? Forget what is behind. It is gone. We cannot undo anything of our past lives except for the blood of Christ who forgives all of our sin. Press on. Forget it. We have more important things, the upward call of God in your life and my life. Amen. That's what we need to be giving our energy to. Trust that releases you, because I want to say it's released my, me in my own life. Forget what is behind. Uh, you cannot change it. It is gone. It is past. But one thing I do, I can strain with all energy in me towards the upward call of God in my life and give myself and all my energy to that. 
That's not Arminian. That's just working hard. That's not legalism. That's just passion. There's a difference. Let's be in Christ, learn to tell the difference. Yeah? How much inconvenience, how much poverty, how much difficulty, how much pressure, how much opposition that you and I are prepared to suffer here is a function, it's a reflection of our hungry we are for heaven. Can I just say, and I don't accuse anybody, but many are prepared to throw away the glory that God has for them in the coming resurrection for the sake of sport on a Sunday, for the sake of money, for the sake of gossip, for the sake of a bigger house, for the sake of an extra bedroom, for the sake of a better car, for the sake of a bigger salary. Surely, surely, there needs to be a growing hunger in all of us as a community of believers living for that glory. Amen? Fourthly, he was prepared. Paul was prepared. He was willing and passionate about leading others into that same radical lifestyle that he was pursuing. And I'm trying this morning to persuade you that it is worth it. Because Jesus is worth it. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlists him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think of what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too might also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for we cannot deny himself. How can I stand here on a Sunday morning and challenge all of you as I'm challenging myself? How can I dare to challenge you to surrender your time, your talents, your treasure, your lives, all of who you are, for something that is temporary, something that is just about now, something that is just religion, something that is earthly? How can I dare to do that? You know, all the good things, all the ministry, all the all that we might have to offer is all worthless if we do it for the here and now. It's worthless if we do it for the here and now. For our reputation, for our glory, for our, the sense of seeing, I love what Petri said, you know, we, why do we evangelize? So that this tribe can grow and get bigger. And we can say, oh, isn't God doing good things? It's a great church. Oh, that's just, that's just not living for glory. That's living for the here and now. That's living so that this church can get bigger, not Anything else? Now we live for eternal glory. My plea this morning is that we become a family that makes it our aim to please Him. We will become a family of believers that makes it our aim. Our, our aim all together, every one of us, adding our contribution so that we can please Christ. 
that we are not, that we're pilgrims, that we've, we've had a taste of eternity, that there's a sense we can smell it, that it's, it's on our, our lips. And that really this life is very brief. And as Rob Rufus has said many times, we are just a brief burp in eternity. That's all we are. We're just a little thing in eternity. But our aim is to please Him in all things. Amen? I want to ask you, and I don't, I don't say this in a flippant way, but do you believe you're going to die? Do you believe that it's just a heartbeat away? It could be for some of us. We don't know. Do you believe that you're going to go and be one of those that are raised from the dead and appear before Him in glory? Do you believe that for others too? Yeah, God has brought us into a wonderful knowledge and truth of the grace of God in the last while, and that's a beautiful thing. And we, we want to soak that up. We want to live in that. We want to be those that are motivated by that in our lives. But can we also be those that live in the truth of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26, which says this. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Can we also live in the reality of that? And we are living for Him and for eternity. I'd like to just read you a poem as I close. A guy called Ben Sheev, called Rise Up. Somebody says this, Every stone that makes you stumble and cuts you when you fall, every serpent here that strikes your heel to curse you when you crawl, the King of Love one day will crush them all. And every sad seduction and every clever lie, every word that woos and wounds the pilgrim children of the sky, the King of Love will break them by and by. And you will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end. I know the night is cruel, but the day is coming soon, and you will rise up in the end. If the thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not their father see this? Would not his anger burn? And would he not repay the tyrant in that day of his return? Wait. Wait for the day of his return. Because he will rise up in the end. He will rise up in the end. I know you need a savior. He is patient in his anger. But he will rise up in the end. And when the stars come crashing to the sea, and the high and mighty fall down on their knees, when you see the sun descending in the sky, the chains of death will fall around your feet, and you will rise up in the end. You will rise up in the end. Friends, we are living for that, for that day.